Hello, and welcome to Energy Talks, a podcast from the team at Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels. We're going to be talking about how Europe is trying to cope with the immediate problem of the energy crisis and the medium term one of ending our reliance upon fossil fuels. And this could hardly be a bigger issue. European governments have got to keep the lights on and the wheels of industry turning, while at the same time not getting into Russian blackmail and not forgetting the need to reduce CO2 emissions. If they get it wrong, many people will suffer, businesses will collapse, and civil unrest could bring down governments. I'm Chris Davis. I'm a former member of the European Parliament and now a senior advisor to Ruth Pedersen Public Affairs. And I'm joined by two of my fellow senior advisors who really know their stuff as former senior players with the European Commission. Megan Richards was Director of Energy Policy at the Commission. Peter Viz, who drafted the emissions trading system two decades ago, was Chief of Staff for a Climate Action Commissioner. Megan, the talk now is of the energy crisis, but let's go back to February before Putin launched his attack on Ukraine. What then were the objects of European energy policy? The Fit for 55 package, I suppose, was the jargon. Yes, I think one of the important things to keep in mind in this context is that European energy policy has existed long before these increases in prices, of course. Energy policy had a primary priority, which was energy security. When the European Union expanded its membership in 2004, it brought in a number of new countries, 10 at that time, and a number of those countries were solely dependent on a single supplier for a large portion of their energy supply, which was imported, I won't say from whom, but a single supplier, let's put it that way. So that was one of the important elements in EU energy policy. The second most important was making sure the internal market worked well, because you want to be able to take energy from different places, move it around, make sure that all the different countries within Europe and beyond its borders can exchange and trade well so that there's a good system. The third element was energy efficiency, making sure efficient use of the energy sources that we have in Europe and those that we have to import, particularly as imports are increasing, are used to the best possible way. Then, of course, renewables was an important element, research, competitiveness, etc. So what happened in the last year and a half was that after the real economic downturn that COVID implied and, and imposed upon many, many countries around the world, the vast majority of countries around the world, as COVID began to recede and vaccinations increased and people began to be able to come back to work, there was a huge demand for energy, of course. During the one and a half years when COVID was in full force, that demand had re reduced significantly. When countries came back onto board, of course, there was a huge demand. Prices were going up even before. So prices were going invaded. up, absolutely. And why did prices go up in particular? Because supply had been reduced. So during COVID, producers had not stopped producing, but had slowed down production, went into maintenance mode, did a whole series of other things, which meant that when that huge demand crush arrived, there was less supply than would normally have been. So that was the beginning. Then, of course, on the 24th of February, we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which further 
exacerbated an already difficult situation. Just to take you back a bit, is energy primarily a member state function or is it up to the European Union? I seem to remember Tony Blair back in 2006, for example, arguing that energy should be a European Union function and it hadn't been before. Maybe I'm just misremembering here. It's a combined responsibility and it's quite clear from the treaty that member states have the right to choose their energy mix. So if one country wants to have nuclear power or only nuclear power or another one wants to use only renewables or more renewables from hydro or more renewables from solar, that's entirely up to those countries. Of course, those countries also have to meet the EU legislative requirements for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, for sustainability, etc., etc. So it would be hard to see a country saying, we'll only use coal and carbon capture uh, use and storage to reduce emissions because it would be unlikely to reach the sustainability and CO2 emission requirements that the EU has. So the EU as a whole doesn't have the authority to go to, let's say, Germany and say, sorry, Germany, you have to stop importing gas from Russia. They can't do that. There was no legal provision to do that. Okay, well, that touches upon the, the key issue that you raised, which is of energy security being one of the priorities. Um, obviously, the Commission failed hopelessly, didn't it? I mean, we all remember Nord Stream 2. But then it's not simply the Germans who, who've gone down that road. Hungary, of course, and, and Bulgaria and others are hugely dependent upon Russian gas. So you, so clearly... Uh, except, you get very Chris, I'm sorry to interrupt you, because it's not, I just, as I mentioned, it's not the Commission's responsibility to do that. The Commission did try. It had made every effort it had. It didn't have legal instruments to stop country X or country Y from importing from Russia. It did try with all its other policies to make sure that there was the proper energy mix. It had, as I mentioned, other legislative provisions. I think I've touched upon a raw nerve here. You sound very defensive. <laughs> you sound as though, you know, too many fingers have been pointed at the Commission when really it's, you know, Germany made its own mistakes. Hungary's making its own mistakes. Not that there's nothing you can do. You can do a lot, but you cannot impose a legal restriction on importations from Russia, for example. And as I mentioned, in the 2004 expansion of membership of the European Union, there were a number of member states that were solely reliant on a single supplier for their imports. That number of countries reduced from about six or seven down to about one last year, no, even three or four years ago. So there were efforts, there was a lot of movement, but not to the extent that it would allow Europe to avoid this energy crisis. And don't forget, the rest of the world has also suffered from an energy crisis. If you look at the United States and gasoline prices, President Biden is doing everything he can to reduce gas prices because politically this is something that is very sensitive in the United States where people drive far further in their private vehicles than they do in Europe, for example. The other priority, of course, is, is curbing climate change, reducing the emissions. Peter, you know, you've been working on this for decades now. How well was the European Union doing before February? They were doing pretty well, actually. I would say unexpectedly well. And of course, the coroner reduced emissions in the year 2020 and 2021. But I think we've seen a big rebound in emissions since. And I think 2022 is likely to be higher emissions, much higher. I've just read that Ukraine is now exporting coal to Poland or more coal to Poland. We all know coal-fired power stations are being reignited in various Exactly. Countries. They're being recommissioned. If they were 
previously being mothballed, but they're also working flat out because coal's not as critically restricted in terms of supply as natural gas. And indeed, natural gas prices are so high that coal is the preferred fuel in terms of cost. So there is a problem right now and emissions are likely to go up during this crisis, but it must not take away from the absolute imperative to stay fixed on our climate goals, even if there is a short term deviation. I mean, this is a crisis which is teaching us a lot of things, but primarily teaching us the importance of energy security. And I think we've been, the Commission, for instance, has been talking about this a long time, but talking is nothing like action. What's happening now is action. And as Jean Monnet famously said in his memoirs, Europe will be forged in crises and the outcome of these crises will, you know, shape Europe. That's what's happening. We're going to, we're really learning now how important energy security is. And in hindsight, the overdependence of several member states on Russian gas looks quite imprudent. But okay, of course, well, with, with, you, you mentioned the word hindsight. Can I throw out to you both Megan and Peter? With hindsight, would you have expected so much emphasis to be placed on hydrogen as is now being placed, you know, a couple of years ago? Because it seems to have, it seems to come out of almost nowhere. I, I've been a rather I, surprised, but Megan, you're the one who came from the DG Energy. But I mean, hydrogen per se is a horribly polluting product if it's made from natural gas, as is normally the case. So let's let's qualify. It's what we can be excited about is is clean hydrogen where the CO2 is somehow captured or perhaps not even generated at all through catalysis. Uh, yeah, I mean, then there's no CO2. That's called green hydrogen. That's the fuel of choice if cost was not the only factor. But there's none of it around, very little amounts of it, not much blue either. So basically hydrogen at the moment is a pretty polluting product. And we've got to move the dial from grey to green, and that's going to take time, but it's going to take a lot of effort. And that's what the Commission is and the member states are trying to put into it now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if I can just add, I mean, hydrogen has existed for many years. It's been used as a source for many, many years. And you see many players producing hydrogen, using it. I think that the emphasis that we see now on hydrogen is the potential for green hydrogen. Peter mentioned the difference between pink. Well, not you didn't mention pink, actually. Pink is from nuclear, but blue and green. And of course, with huge renewable expansion, the potential to increase the use and production of clean green hydrogen would increase as well. So that's where the interest is right now. But the JRC has been working on hydrogen fuel cells, for 20 years. And there are companies in Europe that run hydrogen buses and use hydrogen for all sorts of other purposes as well, including increase, ammonia. Whether it can increase on the scale that is currently being envisaged, I think is, is you know, even some environmentalists, some NGOs are sceptical about that. Yeah, but we've got to make all this effort because what hydrogen promises to be able to do is it's potentially going to be a means of decarbonizing hard to abate sectors like steel sector. There's now a pilot plant making steel that is green steel that is using hydrogen. And that is, of course, a way of not using coal. So ultimately, hydrogen's a means by which we will be able to decarbonize hard to abate sectors. Equally, hydrogen, green hydrogen might be an ingredient in synthetic fuels that might ultimately decarbonize aviation emissions. But we have an awful long way to go. 
and ramping up is what it's about. And that green hydrogen is what the emphasis is on now. Okay, February 24th, Putin invades Ukraine. Two days before that, Germany postpones or cancels Nord Stream 2. Gas prices since then have been soaring and the gas is being seen as a weapon that Putin is using against the European economies. And of course, we've seen all sorts of reactions from, from the Commission. Unprecedented reactions, it's been said. Initially, the Recovery and Resilience Facility, is that correct, for 200 billion euros to promote investments? Uh, I mean, as I look around the figures, especially with the latest September announcements, all sorts of figures being thrown out. It, Megan, would you regard this indeed as unprecedented? Well, I, I think to put into context the Recovery and Resilience Fund, it wasn't related to energy prices specifically. It wasn't related to Nord Stream 2. It was really to try to bring the economic boost back in that had been diminished by COVID. That's what the initial incentive was for recovery and resilience. Of course, it's also supposed to be directed to the clean energy transition, to greening the European industry, etc. But those two go hand in hand. And second, just on the so-called cancellation of Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 was a commercial project. Let's put it in context. It was heavily subsidized. No one will tell you this, but heavily subsidized by Gazprom, in other words, the Russian gas company. But it was primarily European gas and oil companies that were involved in the project itself. What happened in terms of the member states' participation was the requirement for permitting, both Denmark and Germany, and I think some other uh, countries as well, needed to certify and permit the transfer and transit of the pipeline through their offshore waters first. And secondly, the German government had to certify that everything that needed to be done had been done. And including, I recall very well, there was an adjustment to the gas pipeline legislation. I've forgotten the exact term of this legislation that had to be adjusted in 2016, probably, 2016, 2017, in order to allow the Commission to have a slightly better view and, and application of the pipeline in this particular case. So it wasn't that Germany just stopped the pipeline. The pipeline existed. In fact, gas had already started coming through in test amounts. But what was not furthered, let's call it that, what was not finalized, was the final certification of the pipeline. Okay. And then, of course, the political aspects came in as well. One way or another, the consequences of Putin's invasion, and we talked about the rising prices beforehand, but I've seen figures now that gas prices are 10 times higher than they were, I don't know, a year ago. Is, is, yeah. is that right? I think what you've got to admit that this situation we're in is absolutely unprecedented. Gas prices have never been so high and by extension electricity prices have never been high. That's definitely politically extremely difficult, economically extremely difficult and socially extremely difficult. Now what has happened in the slipstream of that is that member states have tried to react and some have done so quickly but badly in that they have tried to subsidize fossil fuel prices for everybody, whereas in actual fact it's unaffordable to do it for everybody and you only should target help on the people who really need it. So the poorer people and smaller businesses that are more vulnerable. 
And I mean, that targeting of help has in a large extent been forgotten in the crisis so far. And this is very perverse because basically if prices go up, people will naturally react and try to spend less on energy. And so they'll try to reduce their energy consumption. And if you subsidize energy prices, that will clearly incentivize higher energy consumption, which isn't what the European Union wants. But perversely, some of the initial reactions have been to, if you like... I've got to say, I don't understand the, I don't understand the response of some governments on this. I mean, the, the object should surely be to reduce energy consumption overall, if you can. And indeed... They want should, to be uh, re-elected, Chris. Well, we're, <laughs> yeah, we know how to deal with climate change. We just don't know how to get re-elected if we do it. Yeah, true enough. But on the other hand, they want to be re-elected. But the point Peter was making is costs are so unprecedented, you need to use the money wisely and support those who are going to suffer the most to the greatest extent, while allowing, I suppose, some market pressures to exert their influence and encourage people to invest in insulating their homes and reducing energy consumption in all sorts of ways. And of course, in the case of business, even more than for personal use. And, and that's exactly what the Commission's just uh, been proposing. Let me, I'll, 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 I'll come to that, Peter, but just okay. to, whoa, whoa, let me put you on the spot for a moment, because some people also point their finger at climate change measures and green levies and the emissions trading system and saying it's the emissions trading system which is also contributing to the high price of electricity. They are one of the components in the price of energy, fossil energy, but they are absolutely not the cause of this crisis. And they are some things that have been in place in order to be able to subsidise the sorts of clean energy that we want to see more of, I think it's quite a wrong diagnosis to say that they are in any way responsible for this crisis. But it's, it is a fact that they do contribute to price. In well, some... well, how much, Peter? Is it 10 percent, 20 percent of the bills we're paying or 30 percent? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the difficulty is with the emissions trading system, for example, and the carbon price of that. It varies. And at the moment, it's around 70 euros a tonne of CO2. It has nearly reached 100 in the relatively recent past. And a few years ago, it was as low as 15. So, I mean, we, we've talked there of a huge price variation. But I, I wouldn't like to guess what percentage of the energy price it is. But it's something that we have accepted that users should pay because in the end, the users of energy are asked to contribute through these contributions, and then that money is directed to good causes, if you like. Nothing wrong yeah. with that, I think. Okay, question. Electricity prices, as I understand it, and I'm trying to get my head around this, you know, electricity prices are linked to gas prices. It's the gas price that sets the price of electricity. Am I wrong here? And if I'm not wrong, why is that the case? It's not that they're linked specifically to gas. They're linked to the highest price on the market. So as the price is determined, the wholesale price, it depends on all the different inputs. So you have inputs from burning of waste, you have inputs from renewables, you have inputs from nuclear, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And as gas is the highest costing input right now, or electricity produced from gas, that's where the price is determined. And that's what these countries who are opposed to this are complaining about. That was the system that worked for many, many years. And of course, when gas was extremely cheap, as it was for many, many years, it worked quite well. It wasn't that it was linked to gas specifically. Probably then it might have even been linked to coal. Coal might have been the highest price. I don't know the exact high price at the time. It could have been nuclear energy, electricity rather. So that's how the system works. And that's why there is this argument about adjusting the system now. 
at least temporarily. I'm not sure if the system will be changed permanently, but there is certainly talk about adjusting it at least now as a temporary measure. Okay, it'll be interesting to see where that develops. Do you think there will be some attempts to alter the way in which the markets? I mean, work? President von der Leyen was very emphatic in her State of the Union speech earlier this week. She said that the electricity market design as exists today is not fit for a purpose. And she said that it would be reformed. I think that is... She said uh, there would be a comprehensive and full review. Okay, well, those are careful words and I'm sure they've been chosen deliberately because there is perhaps criticism being levied at the way electricity prices are determined by the what they call marginal cost pricing. It's basically a system that has served well in the past but might need adjustment. But the trouble is to think of a better system. My own instinct would be to go and look at how electricity prices are formed in other parts of the world, in North America, for example, and see whether we can learn some of the lessons from them. Because I don't think any jurisdiction has a monopoly of good policy tools. There's good and bad in every policy toolbox. Okay, so that's going to get looked at anyway. So tell me, the Commission has come forward with this series of proposals it's putting to member state governments designed to, first of all, raise money that can go back to consumers to help soften the blow. So consumers and industry, presumably, because industry is in many cases is screaming because of the increase in prices and jobs and firms will go to the wall as a result of this. But the Commission wants to raise 140 billion euros, I think, to go to consumers. But in practice, that will go to member states because they, you know, it's not the Commission that gives out Christmas presents to people, is it? Well, they call it a solidarity contribution, basically. And the Commission is asking the member states to levy such a contribution or such a, you might call it, windfall tax on the profits from the oil, gas and coal and other fossil sectors. But it's also it's also raising money from all the renewables and nuclear and because it says they're making. Yes, because their costs are so low. But they sell electricity at this established price, which is based on the last input. And because gas prices are so high, the overall electricity price is established at a quite high level under the current circumstances. But I think another aspect that's important in the concept of electricity market design is that the legislation was only just amended and updated a few years ago. And that was to put even more emphasis on the role of consumers, give consumers better ability to generate their own electricity. Many Europeans, not enough obviously, have their own solar panels or communities have established wind turbines that generate electricity for their own communities. The market design was also meant to improve and ameliorate the way in which renewable energy was brought into the grid, sold, etc. So there was a huge effort to make the market better and that was very successful. It's only now that these huge gas price increases have distorted the market that these adjustments have finally been agreed to to be done. But again, I think the basic principle of the market design is good. It's just this extraordinary situation with gas prices currently. These sums of money, they sound huge. 140 billion euros, for example, going to be raised by these windfall tax type measures to be redistributed to consumers. And yet I read that Norway alone is making more than that sum of money in profits from the sale of gas to European countries. I mean, the whole world is turned upside down at the moment when it comes to logic, I suppose. As well as the US LNG producers who have had a 
windfall in being able to send gas to Europe. Rightly so, it's, it's beneficial for Europe, but it's, so it's, been, it's had a huge, a huge benefit for them and a so cost for Europeans. When, what happens if the Commission wants the European Union to levy windfall taxes? But I mean, Germany, I think, is doing that already, or has announced it's going to do so. Is this going to be double taxation? It's specifically mentioned in the proposals that the member states that have such a windfall tax, if we're going to call it that, don't have to apply another one. But I think it isn't either Norway's fault that they're making a windfall profit. Oil, there are many oil companies that are doing that, making more money. And that's a little bit the rationale why there should be a solidarity contribution levied on oil and gas sectors so that the revenues that can be collected by member states can then be redirected to the energy consumers, vulnerable households, hard hit companies and the energy intensive industries. They're going to need a lot of money to bail them out. So thank goodness in a way that those revenues are going to be there and they're going to be made available for that purpose. It's a bold move by the Commission, I must say. I always used to tell people, visitors to the European Parliament, for example, that the, the European Union doesn't do tax. That's up to, to member states. And then, of course, along came the emissions trading system. And we used to call that what a regulatory arrangement or economic instrument. We call it. That's what we call it. And this, like. and this latest proposal from the Commission is what is it going to be called? An exceptional temporary solidarity contribution. Exactly. Well, you, you were a chef de cabinet and, and Megan, you, were, you did you always to sit around thinking we can't call this a tax? What should we call it? You know, who's got the best idea? How do you finesse this? The, the Commission does do tax. I mean, there is an energy taxation directive that exists and was established by the European Union. The problem with taxation in the EU context is it's unanimous. And so when the energy taxation directive was attempted to be improved and modernized and made better, let's call it that, I've forgotten the exact year, but let's say 10 years ago, it was impossible to get it through. Now the Commission is trying to bring it forward again. But people don't sit around saying, shall we call this tax something else just to pretend it's not a tax? OK, so if it's a tax, you need unanimity, which you're not going to get. But if it's a contribution, you only need qualified majority voting. I think that's true. <laughs> but I don't think this even fulfills the definition of a tax because a tax is a, is a at a fixed rate, whereas this contribution is going to be levied on profits of companies according to how much profit they make, I, I think can justify not calling itself a tax, but indeed it's the member states who are going to be levying it. So the European treaty isn't infringed in that sense at all. OK, well, Euroelectric, which is the trade association for the electricity industry, says that these new measures will damage investor confidence, presumably in investing in future energy supplies and the like. Do you think they will? Unfortunately, I think they have a point. I'm very sorry to say it, and I understand very well where the Commission is coming from, and this is really a crisis. But what you want to do in those cases is take all the, let's say, renewables companies that have had huge costs in the last few years. You want them to put more investment out. You want them to invest in new infrastructure. And you want them to take those so-called windfall profits and invest again. I think it might have been better to say, OK, we recognize that you've made a lot of money in this situation. Make sure you invested in new infrastructure, roll out new uh, solar plants, roll out new wind farms, exactly. offshore, but onshore. That would have been perhaps even better. But it is indeed what the Commission is doing. I think they are not only trying to channel revenues towards the vulnerable, but they're also trying to stimulate further deployment of renewable 
energy and such like energy efficiency measures too. I think, you know, but it's not the governments that make those investments. And since the money goes to the governments, the mem our governments of the member states, but they unless they then pass it back uh, as subsidies. They subsidize. You know, if people get subsidies for their energy efficiency, they'll more likely go down that road. I tried to get energy efficiency funding out the door for years. No one wanted it when prices were low. Now that prices are extraordinarily high, perhaps there'll be some progress. So out of every crisis, as it said, I suppose the crisis is helping the energy transition, helping us move away from fossil fuels, despite the, the temporary reopening of coal power stations and the like. Do you think? It must be, surely, because we must be investing in renewables to a greater extent than ever before. I hope we are. I think we are. But of course, in this particular crisis, there's also got to be some money just to keep the lights on by whichever means we have. Okay. Um, but, you know, we're going well, in a direction and this should not throw us off course. That's the important thing. And it is a disincentive to the renewables investors to when they see that their profits are taken away. And again, I recognize the situation. It's very difficult and it's very special. But you want well, them the to reinvest. Although these measures are exceptional, are they actually enough? I mean, is Putin going to get his way? Is he going to seriously damage European industry, especially energy intensive industries, as a result of what he's been doing over the last year? Look, damage will be done, but I'm impressed that we're ready for this winter. I mean, basically, gas reserves are largely to the extent that we wanted them to be at the beginning of the winter. Measures are being taken in every country to try and reduce demand to try and make themselves more secure. I think what's actually happening is we're cracking it. We're beginning to get this under control. Wow. Oh, you're very yeah. optimistic. Yeah. You're more pessimistic right. than you are. We don't know what the winter is going to be like. We don't know how cold it is. Those reserves are good. There's no question about that, but they only last a few months. It's not enough to last through the whole winter. Supplies of other sources are still quite constrained. That's I think there will be a massive economic hit on Europe we don't as a want result to be of beaten in this because you know we want to be able to stand up and keep functioning as an economy throughout the winter into next year and next winter as well and we seem to be doing remarkable things in an incredibly short space of time and the person who should be most worried is Putin because he's relying on his weaponizing energy to succeed to make us break the unity of the European Union and he's not succeeding to do this which is I think a much better place to be. I would be more worried in his shoes than I am in the shoes of the Chancellor of Germany or the President of France. Well, the Czech presidency is calling an extraordinary meeting of the Energy Council at the end of the month on 30th of September to put these measures to the member states of the EU. Extraordinary indeed. And they're going to try and push these measures through by a council regulation. I have to say, as a former member of the European Parliament, I've never heard of a council regulation. I'm used to the European Parliament being involved in all decisions of this kind. This is real politique, I'm afraid. Co-decision or the ordinary legislative procedure would just take too long, I think. Whereas it is actually possible for this to be agreed on the 30th of September, if the Member States are willing. Okay, so we're going to actually see some action and I assume we're going to get an agreement of something very close to what the Commission is proposing. It's an emergency, so I think the Member States will want to take action. They might not all agree on the action to be taken, but I think they will all want to move forward. No, well, I think we can probably assume that Hungary will not be putting up its hands in favour of the package, as it still seems very close to Gazprom and, and Russia. But it will be an example, I suppose, of the European Union working at speed, coming forward with decisive 
exceptional measures and seeing them through the process more quickly than most of us believed was possible. Yeah, it, that's just what John Monet said, you know, Europe will be forged in crises and we're in a crisis and we're moving forward. But it's also the time, I forgot now who said this, but you should never let a crisis go to waste. So this is absolutely the time to make the best of a terrible situation and ensure that renewables are rolled out, that decarbonization takes place, and all the other elements of the Green Deal are pushed forward at the same time. We shouldn't drop our aspirations in the face of this crisis. Okay, just so long as we're not in agreement that crisis is a good thing. <laughs> on the whole, peace and moderation and the middle road pleases many of us to a greater extent. Thank you very much. That's uh, Megan Richards and Peter Viz, both formerly of the European Commission, now senior advisors to Ruth Pedersen Public Affairs. I'm Chris Davis, also a, a senior advisor with Ruth Pedersen. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Energy Talks and keep listening out because we hope to have another one before very long. Thank you.